the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. CBN Pinellas Park, W262CP Bayonet Point. Brought to you by Moss Nissan. Moss Nissan. Portions of this hour have been pre recorded for broadcast at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. Never think that the Bible just presents stories like any other literature book. It doesn't. There's always a message involved in the story. There's always something more than just a story. It's a sermon within a narrative. That's a good way to put it. It's, it's always a divine message, never just a story. What is the message of Esther? The message of Esther is the providence of God. The biblical story of Esther is truly enthralling filled with plots and subplots, suspense and heroism. It's the kind of story one might expect to find among the novels in a modern bookstore. Yet it is much more than a story. It's an amazing account of God's wisdom, control, and faithfulness. We welcome you to today's broadcast of Verse by Verse, and we're glad you could join us today for the start of this new series of messages. Our teacher, as always, is Steve Kreloff, pastor of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Today, Pastor Steve launches us on a journey to a faraway land ruled by a powerful king and filled with strange customs. But even in this ancient and distant land of Persia, the God of Israel still exercises control over the events of human history. Let's join Steve now and get started on this study of the Book of Esther. The basketball court is not the usual place that a person learns something about theology. But it was on the basketball court that I learned a very important theological lesson a number of years ago. Because it was on the basketball court that I first realized that Christians use words that are inconsistent with biblical sound theology. A number of years ago, I was playing a game of one-on-one in basketball and playing with a Christian friend, and then I sunk this incredible shot. I really did. You know what he yelled out? What luck? (laughs) Things like that. You know, open your eyes, that kind of stuff. Now, I was a fairly new Christian at the time, but it dawned on me at that moment that if God is sovereign and he controls everything, then there's really no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as chance or coincidence or accident or fate or good or bad fortune. Things don't just happen by chance. And Christians ought to know better than to use the cliches that the world has invented to interpret the way that events turn out. You can tell the way non-Christians interpret the events of life just by the expressions that they use. For instance, we hear this, I guess I'm just lucky, 
Or those things happen, you know. Or as fate would have it, how about this one? I just happened to be walking by or whatever. I was just very fortunate. What a coincidence. And on and on it goes. There, there are others, you know, that says that's the way the ball bounces. Maybe you've grown up hearing the expression put this way. That's the way the mop flops. Some even say that's the way the cookie crumbles. You know, different parts of the country have their different cliches in order to interpret life. But these expressions and cliches are just unacceptable for a Christian because we know better. We shouldn't use words like that or expressions like that. We know that there is a sovereign God who rules over the course of human affairs in order to accomplish his divine purposes. Now, not only does does that truth of God's sovereignty run throughout the pages of Scripture, but God specifically designated one book in the Bible to convey that very message of his sovereignty. And that one book is the Old Testament book, Esther. Esther is found in your Bibles between Nehemiah and Job. And you can turn there. It's between Nehemiah and the book of Job. And it is perhaps the most unique book in all the Bible. Why do I say that? Well, listen to this. It doesn't mention God's name once, but it does mention a pagan king 190 times. But never is there any mention of the name of God. Not only that, it is never referred to in the New Testament. No New Testament writer quotes from the book of Esther. It is only one of two Bible books named after a woman, Ruth being the other one. And it is a book that has bothered not only Jewish scholars, unsaved Jewish scholars, but also Christian scholars. It bothers people. Now, at first glance, it appears to only be a delightful story of a young Jewish girl living in Persia named Esther, who was chosen to be the queen of Persia. Esther has a cousin who has raised her named Mordecai. And this man, Mordecai, one day overhears a plot to kill the king of Persia. Now, Mordecai reports this plot, but no one in the royal palace rewards his loyalty. In the meantime, Mordecai incurs the wrath of a Persian leader by the name of Haman. Haman refuses, or rather, Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman. And out of spiteful revenge and hatred, Haman determines to destroy not only Mordecai, but Mordecai's people, the Jews, all of the Jews. He determines to exterminate everybody who's a Jew. But one night something happened. The king couldn't sleep. So he sends for a book that contains the official records of the kingdom. If you've ever been in a leadership position in a church or any kind of leadership position, you know that the books of the minutes would put anybody to sleep. Okay? Generally speaking, they're kind of boring. And that's what he did. He says, give me the record books. I can't sleep and I want to read what's happening and that'll help me to fall asleep. But while reading this book, he comes across a record of how a plot to assassinate him was foiled. And he asks if the man who reported this plot has ever been rewarded. And the answer is no, he's been overlooked. So the king decides to reward Mordecai. In the process of rewarding this man Mordecai, Guess who has to honor him? Haman has to honor Mordecai 
the man he despises. And Haman's plot to exterminate Mordecai and the Jews in the, in the meantime is exposed. And he is hung on the very same gallows that he had prepared to hang Mordecai on. The king then orders a decree which saves the Jewish people from being totally exterminated. Now, that is basically the story, capsule form, of the book of Esther. But you know, the Bible doesn't present stories to us for the sake of stories. Never think that the Bible just presents stories like any other literature book. It doesn't. There's always a message involved in the story. There's always something more than just a story. It's a, it's a, a sermon within a narrative. That's a good way to put it. It's, it's always a divine message, never just a story. And what is the message of Esther? The message of Esther is the providence of God. If you're taking notes on this, that is the key term in the book of Esther. The providence of God. The purpose and theme of Esther is to demonstrate the providential care of God over his chosen people, Israel. Now, what do we mean by the term providence? This word is made up of two words, pro meaning before and video meaning to see. When you put it together, it means to see before or foresight would be the term we would use today. To see something before it actually happens. That's what we mean by providence. But with God, God not only sees what will happen, but he takes action in relation to what he sees. So that is the thought of providence. It's God who sees ahead and takes action in relation to what he sees coming ahead. Someone has defined providence as the hand of God in the glove of history. That's good. It's the hand of God in the glove of history. You see, God is ruling the universe through providence. God is behind the scenes, shifting and directing and sovereignly manipulating the ordinary events of life to bring about his predetermined plan. You should understand that God controls the universe through providence. Rarely, we should say infrequently, do we really see miraculous interventions of God, even in the biblical record. We tend to think that, that miracles happened throughout the Old Testament. They didn't. Or that miracles happened throughout the New Testament. They didn't. There are times in history where God breaks in and does something which we would term miraculous. It is, it is beyond the course of normal nature and natural laws. But that's not the way God normally controls history. He takes the very ordinary, mundane, non-miraculous doings, which consist of the ordinary ongoing of human affairs to bring about, by natural process, those results which are divinely predetermined. In other words, the hand of God is in the glove of history, behind the scenes, bringing things to, to his own predetermined plan. Now, the book of Esther was written to teach us about God's providence in preserving his people, Israel. God looked ahead in history, and he saw all the events, and he saw the anti-Semitic hatred of Haman, and he worked behind the scenes in order to fit those events into his divine plan. And his plan was to preserve the Jewish people. I would invite you to turn to Psalm 121. Psalm 121 has perhaps 
the key phrase to understand the book of Esther. In verse 4, we read in Psalm 121, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. In other words, God's back is never turns towards Israel in the sense of he's not aware of what's going on. God will always keep Israel. There's no enemy that can come in and completely destroy Israel because God is taking a nap, because God is sleeping, because God is, is slumbering. No, he keeps Israel and he will go on keeping Israel. But let me ask you a question. Would God keep Israel if they were disobedient and rebellious to him? Would God keep Israel if they turned their backs on him, if they were unfaithful towards him? A great many Christian scholars today say God would not keep Israel. God would would abandon Israel. And they say that that is what God has done. And he's now only interested in the church. And God is no longer interested in Israel. God is no longer, they say, interested in the Jewish people. God is building his church and that's all he's going to build. But what does the word of God teach? What does God's word say about this? Now, we're going to see more about this when we get to Romans 10, uh, 9, 10, 11. But for now, just very briefly, we ought to understand that Israel was God's covenant people in the Old Testament. She was uniquely in the place of spiritual blessing and privilege, uniquely. No other people, no other nation has ever been like Israel, nor will ever be like Israel. Her greatest son was the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he came, many, many, many Jews of the first century embraced him and received him. It's estimated that there were about 100,000 Jews in the first century who accepted Jesus as the Messiah. But as a nation, they officially rejected him. No matter how many Jews accepted him, as a nation, the nation said, no, we'll not have this man to reign over us. But did God reject Israel? Did he say away with you and I'll never have anything to do with you again? Did God abandon her? No. Israel temporarily has been set aside, not abandoned, not forsaken, but she has been nationally set aside. And at the day of Pentecost, on that day, God began building something else, something new, something never spoken about in the Old Testament. He's taken Jews and he's taken Gentiles and he's made something brand new called the church, made up not of Israelites, but made up of Jews and not just pagans, but made up of Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles. And as Ephesians says, a new man, the Christian part of the church. And today, God is not dealing with the nation of Israel in a special relationship like in Old Testament times. But he is still preserving her. He is still keeping her. In spite of men like Hitler, the Arab-Israeli tension, the Russian persecution going on right now in Israel, God is preserving his ancient people. And while the church now stands in that place of special relationship and blessing to the Lord, there's coming a day when the church will be raptured, when she's taken out of the world. And God, once again, will begin with Israel as a national entity. The temple will be rebuilt. More will be in the land. They'll go back to an Old Testament economy with sacrifices and the law being put into 
effect again, and then God will once again begin dealing with Israel as a national entity. So he has temporarily set her aside. But he has always preserved her. And the message of the book of Esther is that God will preserve and keep Israel regardless of Israel's disobedience and rebellion to him. Now tonight, it is my great joy to burst a few theological bubbles. I take great satisfaction that, in fact, I'm going, I should say I'm going to try to burst them. I may not burst them. Many have looked up to Esther. Many have looked up to Mordecai. The common Christian understanding of Esther and Mordecai, her cousin, is that they were godly, courageous Jews. Spiritual examples for us to emulate. Most books dealing with Esther will say that. They will say that what godly examples they were and we should follow them. And, and, and there are even titles of books called things like If I Perish, I Perish and, and things like that. Phrases taken out of the book of Esther to sort of encourage us to follow that great example, they say. May I suggest to you tonight that while they were courageous, and there's no question about it, they were courageous. They were not godly and they were not spiritual and they are certainly at least in my mind, without any question, they were not righteous examples for us to follow. Now, having said that, let me try to defend that, because I think the evidence demands this conclusion. And you need to turn to Esther so we can look at a few things. I don't say that lightly. I don't say that with haste. I have thought long about this and have been in prayer about this, and it is my not only conclusion but conviction that these things are true. Well, let me back it up. First of all, let's look at Esther. Esther married a pagan king. Uh, she became the wife of a man by the name of Xerxes. Pagan king. A zealous pagan man. One who was in false religion. Now some say, but she was forced to do this. Some say she was forced against her will to do this. She had no choice in the matter. Well, let's look at Esther chapter 2, verse 8. If she was forced in the matter, it's one thing. But if she was willful in her desire to be the queen of Persia, then it's quite another. And it came about when the command and, the de and decree of the king was heard, and many young ladies were gathered to Susa, the capital, into the cust uh, custody of Hege, that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the custody of Hege, who was in charge of the women. Now, the key word there was taken, was taken. Now, some say, you see, that means that she was taken by force. Doesn't mean that at all. The Hebrew word translated taken does not mean forced against her will. If you'll jump down on the page to verse 15, you'll see the same word used to tell us something that she, that she was not forced against her will to do. Now, when the turn of Esther, the daughter, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, Mordecai took her as his daughter. That's the same word that's used in verse 8. Now, you know the relationship of Esther and Mordecai. She was not forced against her will. She loved this man. She obeyed this man. She was not a rebellious Jewess. 
She probably deeply respected her parents, and when her parents were, were no longer there, Mordecai took her in, and she was not forced against her will. Therefore, verse 8, by the, the very context of the Hebrew word used, is not saying that she was forced against her will to become the queen, or at least taken into custody. She wanted to. So Esther wanted to be queen of Persia, married to a pagan king, ungodly, involved in false religion. In fact, the religion of astrology, cultic and occultic, I should say, not cultic, occultic. You see, the difference between Esther and the Old Testament character Ruth was that Esther was, was a Jew married to a Gentile, while Ruth was a Gentile married to a Jew. Esther was wrong. She should have never married a pagan king. Not only that, but unlike righteous Daniel, which is about this time frame in history, a few years difference, but about this time frame, unlike righteous Daniel, she found no difficulty in eating non-kosher foods for many months. Look at verse 9 of chapter 2. Now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him, so he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and food, gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace, and transferred her and her maids to the best palace in the harem. Esther had no problem eating non-kosher foods. Now you recall Daniel did. Daniel said, there's no way. I'd rather die than disobey the law of God. Daniel was a righteous man. Esther is not a righteous Jew. She is not a righteous woman. She had no problem, no problem whatsoever. Also, she failed to tell anybody that she was Jewish. Mordecai said to her, don't tell anyone, conceal your identity, and she did. This masquerade, I want you to know, did not last a few days or a few weeks or even a few months. It lasted five years. Nobody knew for five years, maybe the closest people to her knew. Maybe those who waited upon her knew. But basically, no one else knew that she was a Jew. One scholar said this, For the masquerade to last that long, she must have done more than eat, dress, and live like a Persian. She must have worshipped like one. Absolutely. Logic demands that. She lived like a Persian, which meant worshipping the stars and doing everything that Daniel said he wouldn't do. The more one discovers of Esther, the more it appears that Jewishness, her Jewishness, was more a matter of, of birth than of religious conviction. Well, it's clear that we should not be putting Esther up on a pedestal as an example of how a young lady should live for God. But despite all of her willingness to live contrary to God's commands, God was still able to use her to accomplish his plans for Israel. This is not to say that what she did was okay. God did not bless her rebellion neither did he excuse it. He merely showed his power to work through anyone, even those who are not in close fellowship with him. As we follow the story and see the examples of God's knowledge and control of all things, we can only marvel at how perfectly everything fits together. Pastor, there are some people who hear the story of Esther and think it should begin once upon a time. It just seems so much like a fairy tale. How can we accept the Esther story as authentic history? 
Is that even important? Well, it is important because it's the Word of God. We accept it as authentic history because it's in the canon of Scripture. It was embraced by the Jewish people, embraced by the uh, the early church. And though it's not quoted in the New Testament, it is part of the canon of Scripture. It is historically accurate. And of course, as we will see in the coming weeks, it is filled with some valuable lessons for all of God's people. Today's broadcast of Verse by Verse is available for download at our website, versebyverseradio.org. In fact, you'll find nearly all of our previous broadcasts posted there. We make these audio files available at no charge, so we invite you to browse the archives and download as many as you'd like. You can even give a copy to a friend. To locate the programs, just look for the Audio Archive tab near the top of the webpage. And there's another valuable free resource that we'd like to make available to each of our listeners. It's the verse-by-verse newsletter, and you can sign up online to receive it, or just give us a call and request it by phone. We believe that you will benefit from the informative articles in the newsletter, but you'll also receive some other free verse-by-verse resources from time to time, so we hope you'll sign up today. The number to dial when ordering the newsletter by phone is... 727-239-0306. And once again, our web address is versebyverseradio.org. Finally, we would like to thank those of you who are partnering together with Verse by Verse through your prayers and financial gifts. As you just heard me mention, most of our resources are available free of charge. Our goal is to provide biblical instruction and spiritual encouragement to as many people as we can, and your partnership with us plays a major role in getting that. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.